This morning we began considering our theme, Living Life on Purpose, and we started off with a cosmic perspective. Before thinking about our purpose, we said, we begin with God's purpose, to align our lives with God, to align our lives with God's will, we, we need to understand His purpose, we need to understand what He's doing, and so we mapped ourselves onto Onto that, our lives, our church, onto God's eternal purpose. Tonight, what we're going to do is zoom in a bit closer uh, from the big picture, from God's, from the grand plan, to a key phase, a key moment in that plan. Uh, really, the key moment in that plan. Um, this phase, this this moment, is the decisive event that makes God's plan possible. Um, it, it, it makes God, I mean, think about what we said earlier. God's plan is to dwell among a people he's made his own. This moment is what makes that possible. Um, it, it's, it's in this moment, this event that we're going to look at, uh, by which God decisively makes his people his own. And, and while it's, it's a staggering event, while it is a, uh, an event to be marveled at. It's an event that elicits our worship. Um, it's more than that. So we're going to talk about the cross tonight, but we're talking about the cross from a particular angle. We're not just simply celebrating the cross, although we are. We're not just simply proclaiming the cross, although we are. Um, but this moment is is meant to have an, a, a determining effect upon how we live. Um, the text that we're going to look at tonight doesn't only display this glorious moment, but it shows us, it implies, it, it exhorts us how to live our lives in light of this moment, and therefore how we do align our lives with God's purpose. To, li- to live life on purpose, to align our life with God's purpose, we have to be captured by this moment. We have to be shaped by this moment. We have to be governed by this moment. We must never grow tired of considering this moment. And I know you as a church, you don't grow tired of considering this moment. We must never be, grow tired meditating upon this moment. We must also, though, never grow tired of applying this moment to our lives. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It was, it was strange a couple of days ago coming to Australia, leaving 90 degree weather in the middle of summer and landing, getting off a plane 15 hours later in the middle of winter. Although today, if you call that winter... Um, it's pretty lame. Um, you're lame. It's beautiful, actually. I wish our winters were like that. It's not much of a winter. But um, for me, to think about winter, and I thought about this when I landed wintertime, when I think of winter, I think of Christmas. I don't know what it's like, what Christmas season is like in Australia. But when, when I think of, is it big? Do you celebrate? Okay, good. <laughs> I know you celebrate Christmas, but um, for me, it's big. 
Uh, for me, yeah, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who enjoy celebrating Christmas, and there's people who don't. And I'm, I'm in the former. I love celebrating Christmas. Not the commercialization, not the trivialization, but I relish family traditions. I enjoy choosing and decorating a tree. And we go out and we cut our own tree. We go out in the woods and we find just the tree. And I'm so proud. My 12-year-old son, he now will compare every tree, with, measure it with mathematical precision, its proportions. And I'm just so proud that he's so meticulous at that because you've got to have the right tree. I, 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 I love that. I love uh, reading the Christmas story every night from the King James Version, Luke chapter 2. It must be King James in our house. Um, for the Christmas story, and, I, and and by the by the you know twenty five days later through the Advent season, you know your children have it memorized. It's just wonderful to hear by the end everyone just reciting that Christmas story. I I love picking out gifts for loved ones. I love I cry at the end every time of the Christmas Carol. Do you know it's a wonderful life? Do you have a yeah? Every time I cry. Uh, I, I love reuniting with a family that we don't see quite as often, an extended family. But what I'm especially grateful for is the way Christmas forces our culture to confront the birth of Christ. Um, despite the materialism, so much, at least in America, so much surrounding the Christmas season reflects the events of Christ's birth. I love that. I love it. It's just in people's face. And I love that. Um, in Christian settings, we come at it a different way, but we, we still, we read the gospel accounts, we, we picture the circumstances, and we reflect upon what this event meant for the characters, and what this event meant for us. And so think about when you read, when you read the gospel accounts, you see all these different characters and what it meant for them. The shepherds were afraid, they were sore afraid, to use the King James. The, uh, Joseph was perplexed. Herod was troubled. Mary was responsive. The wise men worshipped. And for us, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You shall, Matthew, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what we celebrate, isn't it? But the text I want to look at tonight does something that the gospel writers don't do. The text actually references the same event. But it, it doesn't focus on Bethlehem. It doesn't tell the story of the shepherds and the wise men. It, it, it doesn't tell what Christ's coming meant for other people, meant for the characters. It doesn't even primarily focus on what Christ's coming meant for us in terms of being our Savior. Instead, this text reveals what Christmas meant for Jesus. In a way unique to all of Scripture, this text draws back the veil of eternity and allows us a glimpse 
into the very mind of the eternal Son of God. If ever there was mystery, it's in this text. If, if ever there was something inscrutable, certainly it is the inner life of the pre-existent Son of God. The second person of the Godhead as he pondered the will of the Father that he becomes man. If there's ever anything that should just cause our knees to buckle, it's that. And so we tread upon holy ground tonight as we peer behind the veil that this text lifts for us. But we must be careful to not let our curiosity get the best of us. Uh, God is giving us a glimpse of mystery not to satisfy our curiosity. Um, He's not giving us merely theological data for our speculations. Um, He's not merely giving us a lofty ideal to be admired from a distance. What we're going to look at in this text, from the angle of this text... When this veil is drawn back, what we see is something that is to become visible in your life and in my life. Um, This text is placing a claim on our lives tonight. Um, It's easy to read Philippians 2, 5 to 11, these, these glorious verses, and get caught up in the sheer majesty that they Describe. They, they can almost become disconnected from us, disconnected from our reality, disconnected from the details of our lives and our relationships. But verses 5 to 11, these glorious verses, follow on the heels of Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, and they are tightly connected to it. So we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 11 tonight, but so that we'll see that, I'm going to begin reading in Philippians 2. Verse 1. So read with me. Philippians 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. Any comfort from love. Any participation in the spirit. Any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy. By being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord. And of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. As rich as verses 5 to 11 are. They function here 
really as an illustration of the commandments in verses 3 and 4. Just as Paul rooted those commands in gospel realities, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, those commands flow out of that. Well, now Paul illustrates those commands with the most vivid, the most, the most profound, really the, the ultimate example of selfless giving and humble service to others. So, how do we live life on purpose? Uh, how do we align our, our lives with God's purpose? How do you, as a church, together fulfill God's, God's purpose for you, as individuals and as a church, to bring Him glory in your homes and in your neighborhoods and in Sydney and, and beyond? Well, according to Paul, look at Jesus. Um, look at verse 5. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or as some translations take it, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think this way. Have this mind. Adopt this perspective. It's the mindset of Christ himself. So, living life on purpose means adopting Christ attitude of self-denying servanthood. Adopting that as our own. Fixing our eyes on Him. Allowing His life by the power of the Spirit to shape our own life. Allow His thinking to shape our own thinking. That's the point of this text. That's the role that it is to play in our lives. Christ's death on the cross. I, in, in preaching, its atoning significance is is of ultimate importance, but we're, I'm coming at it at a different angle tonight because of our theme. Christ's death on the cross don't only save us, although His death gloriously saves us. Amen? Christ's self-giving isn't only to be admired and celebrated and worshipped, although it is, and we have, and we will. This text goes further. This text makes a further claim on our lives. And if we were to sum up the claim, and whenever you read God's word, whenever you hear God's word preached, it's not something for you to sit back and consider and ponder and judge. When God, when God, when God speaks, he is placing a claim. Just picture a giant hand coming over my head and grabbing you by the, by the collar and saying, this means you. This text has a claim. And if, I think if we were to sum it up, I'd put it this way. The glory of Christ's humility. The glory of Christ's humility. And it's glorious. But the glory of Christ's humility provides the model and the motivation for our own. The glory of Christ's humility. If you had taken one thing away, that's what it would be. The glory of Christ's humility provides the model and the motivation for our own. If we apply the Bible's commands and, and those wonderful commands of verses 3 and 4, do nothing from rivalry or, or conceit, but in humility count each other's more significant than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. If we try to obey those without reference to Christ, our pursuit of humility will, will inevitably become self-focused. 
and our servanthood will inevitably become self-seeking. We will flatter ourselves. We will compare ourselves favorably to others. And our motivation for humility will dissipate. It will erode. It will weaken. Disconnected from Jesus, our pursuit of humility and servanthood will eventually, inevitably morph into human attainment. And ultimately, self-promotion and self-exaltation. But if you want to know what true humility looks like, and if you want motivation that will sustain you as you pursue humility, look no further than this text. Because the glory of Christ's humility provides the model and the motivation for our own. So what are we to glean from Christ's model? How do we allow this to govern and shape us so that we can live life this way? What, what, is, what does it mean? What does this pattern mean for how I think, for how I live? I want to look at just three simple implications. Three takeaways from Christ's example tonight. First, following Christ's example means this. Number one, surrendering our status. That's what it means. Surrendering our status. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He made himself Nothing. Man, talk about a backstage pass. Paul takes us backstage before Bethlehem, before the manger, before Mary was great with child, and really before creation itself, before time, before planets, before planets leapt into existence, there was the pre-existent Son of God, the second person of the Godhead in the form of God Himself. In the beginning, as we read this morning, was the Word. And the, the word form here, do you see that? He was, though He was, verse 6, in the form of God. There, there's no English equivalent of that word. Um, it, it doesn't mean, like in English, outward appearance. It's almost the opposite. <laughs> what it means is the true nature of something. The, the qualities that are essential to something. The way something really is. That's what the word is trying to communicate. So, before Christmas, from all eternity, Christ was truly God. He could not be more emphatic. He was in full, we're going to say some things that I just want us to consider. He was in full possession of the divine nature. Okay? Uh, he was God's equal in every way. Of the same essence as God the Father, God the Son. All that makes God God, Christ was. You got it? All that, that, that phrase in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
I think I would render that last phrase. All that God, and this this sort of brings out the nuance of the original and even the word order of the original. All that God was. The word was. Full possession of the divine nature, fully God. All right, so that's a pillar that's been that's been driven down here. Okay, now one would expect that to be it, right? He's God. Where do you go from being God? Right, being God's enough. Right, I guess. I mean, I'm not God, but I, that, that's what I would think. If you're God, you're done. There, there is no future there is no career path there is no sort of life trajectory for you nothing else to add to your resume no accomplishments to to gather to yourself no no one to impress you you just be god right in all the effulgence of your 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 yourself you're, you're just god but that's not what God, it's not what the second person of the Trinity did. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, though he was God's equal in every way, though all that made God God, he was. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, literally a thing to be seized, a thing to be clutched. It's a difficult term. This, this is a difficult text. But the idea behind this term is essentially this, using something for one's own advantage. That's the idea. Using something for one's own advantage. Jesus' divinity, his being in very nature, God, for him, for Christ, was not something for him to capitalize on. It was not something he would use for his own advantage. He, he did not look upon his godness as something to benefit from, as something to exploit, as something to use for himself. Do you see? Which is the opposite of ancient kings and rulers. And we could throw in there modern kings and rulers and elected officials who used their positions for their own advantage, not Jesus. His, his divine nature positioned him not to enjoy privilege, which is natural. It, does, it positioned him not to enjoy privilege, but to give to others. He made himself nothing. He literally, in the original, poured himself out. He laid aside, the, he didn't lay aside his godness, but he laid aside, he laid aside the status and the privileges of his pre-incarnate existence. He laid the, that status and that, those privileges he laid them aside. He relinquished his position of exalted majesty. He dwelt in unapproachable light. And he relinquished it. So 
So how do you do that? Verse 7, the next two phrases tell us how he did that. Two aspects. He made himself nothing by first taking the form of a servant. And perhaps that's how your Bible reads, but it should be rendered, not servant. There's about seven words in Greek that can be rendered servant. Only one of which means in every case, every case, slave. This is that word. He took on the form of a slave. He, a sl- what does a slave do? Well, a slave relinquishes all his rights. In the ancient world, that, the slave might be valuable to his owner. He might be skilled. But he has no rights of his own. As far as society is concerned, he's a nobody. Jesus raised his hand for that. That's the kind of existence the Lord of glory volunteered for. This is the life he he adopted. He completely stripped himself of all rights to glory. He gave up the prerogatives and the privileges of deity. So he poured himself out, how? By taking on the nature and characteristics of a slave. So that's one way he poured himself out. The other way he poured himself out is in the next phrase. He made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of man. He poured himself out by becoming a man. Here is the deepest mystery I think of the Bible. Here's the mystery of the incarnation. Here's the glory of Christmas. Now, you've got to be real careful here, okay? You've got to be real careful here. Christ made himself nothing, not by ceasing to be God. Not by that, but in his undiminished divine nature, he became man as well. Are you with me? He made himself nothing, not by ceasing to be God, but by, in that very nature, by becoming man as well. Paul's language is very careful here. Christ was and ever will be God. He never relinquished his godness. But he, literally, in verse 7, he became in the likeness of man. That phrase, being born in the likeness of men, is literally, he, he was God, ever will be God, but he became in the likeness of man. You see that? It's very careful theological calculus in this verse. He was in his very essence God, but he became in the likeness of man. So, to his eternal, immortal, invisible divine nature was added, there was no subtraction, there was added full human nature. Fully God, fully man, neither nature diminishing the other. Not becoming a third thing, not becoming this hybrid, not half man, Half God, but all man 
and all God. Think of it this way. He didn't exchange the nature of God for that of a slave. He displayed the nature of God in the form of a slave. Isn't that amazing? That, and, and, and here's what Christianity tells us. That's what God does. That's what a real God does. That's what a real God does. A real God displays that godness by pouring himself out for others. That's what godness is. God is truly humble. Not humble acting, not the kind of self-deprecating that, oh yes, oh brother, don't compliment me. I'm really just a humble little guy and then inside I'm treasuring my own worth. No, true humility. Humility is God-like. Again, he didn't exchange his deity for humanity. In his deity, he took on humanity. He expressed his deity through that humanity. All right, take a breath. So what did Christmas mean for Jesus? It meant surrendering his status. Giving up his rights. The one who existed in eternal majesty and splendor. Enjoying unhindered communion with the Father and the Spirit. And enjoying unending praise from the host of heaven. Who was the Father's agent in creation. The one by whom and for whom all things were created. That one opted for the vocation of a slave. And in his divinity embraced full human existence. And he did so forever. I feel so intensely my inadequacy to communicate this. I lecture on Christology for days and days and days. And I'm never any closer to feeling adequate. But let's remember where we started. Lest we be overwhelmed by this mystery, by these mind-blowing mysteries, let's remember the intention of this text. The glory of Christ's humility provides the model and motivation for our own. So don't leave this text in the realm of mind-blowing mystery and speculation and dialogue and discussion. This text is meant to govern us, and change us, and motivate us. We don't have to understand this fully to apply it faithfully, do we? We don't. So Jesus Christ, and I, I'm, wanting, I'm wanting to repeat these things because I, I just need to repeat them. To get my, my mind around them. Jesus Christ, who was in the very nature of God, this is what we said, didn't consider that exalted status 
Something to be grasped onto with white knuckles. Something to be enjoyed. Something to be exploited. Something to be, to be capitalized on. Something to be used for personal advantage. No, he made himself nothing. He set aside his privileges. He impoverished himself, choosing the role of a slave. The eternal one laid aside his divinity, well, laid aside his glory, excuse me, to identify with us in our humanity. One commentator, Alex Motier, put it this way. His are the eternal glories, both by nature and by right. But they are, I love his language, they are not a platform for self-display, nor a launching pad for self-advancement. They are all for self-denial. Self is something to pour out. Self is something to pour out. So time out. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Is this, is this your mindset? Is this mine? Operational in you. This attitude operational in you. In your mind, is self something to pour out? My tendency, so often, is not to pour self out. It's to build self up. Can, I hope someone in this room can relate to me. Good, I thank you for just being kind. Um, To feed self, to advertise self, to promote self, to exalt self. I'm not interested in giving up my status. I want to preserve my status. I like grabbing onto what I have with white knuckles and grasp it. I don't want to let go of my significance. I'm on a campaign to convince others of my significance. I sit here in the front row and pray against the temptation to convince you that I'm significant. I do. I just put it to death. Romans 8.13. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're not putting it to death. I just fight it all the time. That's my great ambition for others to recognize how... How, how significant I am. So think for a moment about your, your status. What defines you? How, what you put in that category. Uh, what you find your identity in. What you want people to think when they hear your name. Okay? Think about that. So get it in your mind. Get it in your mind. Could be your gifts. Could be your job, could be your education, could be your relationships, could be your family, how you conduct your family, could be your reputation, could be your sense of humor, could be your looks. How do you handle that thing or that cluster of things? 
are they a platform, to use the quote, are they a platform for self-display? Are they a launching pad for self-advancement? Is life for you one long advertising campaign and you are the product? And you're selling you. Well, if, if Christ is to be our model, then self is something to be poured out. Rights. Your rights. What do you got a right to? Your rights are things to be willingly relinquished. Willingly given up. Status. Something willingly surrendered. That's precisely what Paul had just commanded the Philippians in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more Significant than yourselves. That's what Jesus did. He was infinitely superior to us. But he came and he treated us like we were more significant than him. That's how he treated you. The God of glory treated you as if you were more significant than him because he gave up his status. One just uh, application that came to my mind, it, specific one. If you are currently involved in a relational conflict, okay, some relational challenge, uh, whether that's your marriage or whether that is your relationship with your kids or kids, your relationship with your parents or a roommate, any relation, old or relationship, old or new. If there's conflict in that relationship, tension in that relationship, pain in that relationship, here is hope. I've got hope for you. Do you like hope? Hope's good, isn't it? Here is hope for you. In this relationship, here's to consider. In this relationship, how can I follow Christ's example and let go of my status? How can I let go of my rights? How can I let go of my need to be right? How can I let go of my craving to be respected, my craving to be catered to, my craving to be served? What craving, what demand, what status is causing that conflict that you, following Christ, by the Holy Spirit, could just say, I'm going to let it go. Surrender it. Surrender that demand. Surrender that craving. I'm just going to surrender it. How can you, in that conflict, in that relationship, how can you make yourself nothing? How can you adopt, voluntarily become a slave? Adopt the posture of a slave. That's living life on purpose. Adopting Christ's attitude. You know, keeping Christ's example before us can change everything. Think about this. What do, my, what do my pathetic ambitions amount to when set alongside this vision of a God who ruled creation but signed up for slavery? 
When I see that, he ruled creation. He became a slave. I just go, I'm, a, I'm pathetic. My pride is pathetic. My claims to significance, they're lame. I'm a loser. It's just, it's just bogus. It, why can't I let go? How can I grasp onto my little symbols of earthly status when Christ did not grasp the heavenly glory that was truly his? I want to wear my badges of significance. Fill my chest with medals and badges of how great I am. Rip them off. It's it's worthless. The glory of Christ's humility provides the model. And the motivation of our own. That's the first implication of Christ's example. Surrendering our status. Number two. The second implication of Christ's example. Number two. Denying ourselves to serve others. These, these aren't complex. Denying ourselves to serve others. Verse eight. This is the next step. And being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So note the progression here. Things didn't stop at Christmas. Things didn't stop at the incarnation. Look at what, what we looked at just a moment ago. There's two steps here. As God, he surrendered his status by becoming a man. Step one. Step two. As a man, he humbled himself to serve others. You see the progression? As God, he surrendered his status by taking on the form of a slave. He became a man. Now, now he's a man. As a man, he went further and humbled himself. You see the two steps? He humbled himself for the good of others. Don't don't miss that, that, that progression. He could have come as a man in a way that exalted himself, couldn't he? He could have hit the scene and outshone and outstrutted every tyrant and every, every warrior and every intellectual and every big shot CEO and every rock star. He could have said, I'm God and I'm here and I'm in your face. Couldn't he? That's what I would expect. So let's start, let's start setting things right here. Because <laughs> God's on the scene now. He didn't come to get in people's faces. He didn't come to compete or to humiliate or to outdo his opponents. He didn't he, he put aside his perks as God and he came to do the will of his father. He came to save perishing sinners from the wrath of God by taking it himself is what he came to do. He didn't take half measures. He didn't come saying, all right, I've given my 50%. Now you give 50%. I mean, good grief. I became man. No, his obedience and servanthood extended to the utmost limit. As the text says, every word matters here. To the point of death, even death on a cross. That's not a throwaway phrase. Paul's rhetoric reaches a climax there. Even death 
on a cross. Now, we're Christians. We love the gospel. We love the cross. And so we got a problem because we're so accustomed to that word. We've lost its scandal. In the ancient word, cross was an expletive. It was something you didn't talk about. It was something you didn't say. It was not to be mentioned in polite conversation. It was a word with shock value. It was a punishment reserved for a particular type of person. A punishment reserved for the scum of the earth and the worst of criminals. Think of a, a think of think murderer, think terrorist, think of the worst. That's what that's who died on crosses. And it wasn't just an execution. It was torture. It was real torture. It was public. It was sadistic. It was humiliating. It was degrading. It was agonizing. If they'd have had TV, it would have been banned from TV. And in Jewish eyes, it packed a religious punch. It was the decisive mark of God's curse. No hope for anyone on a cross. A man on a cross had, this is basically what it was, a man on a cross had messed with God and got his due. He messed with the wrong person. He's cursed. That's why a crucified Messiah was so bizarre to the ears of a Jew. It was, it was an utter impossibility. It, it was a vulgar blasphemy. The very last thing, the last thing a Messiah would ever be is crucified. It's a contradiction in terms. Crucified Messiah. Clean dirt. It, it, it just, it's a contradiction. So that was the, so now you start to get the flavor of the extent of Christ's humble servanthood. His self, his humble self-denying for us. That's how far God himself, eternally existent, worshipped by angels, dwelling in an unapproachable light. That's how far that God would stoop for our good. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. How, how, far, how far would you stoop to serve others? So counterintuitive, isn't it? So counterintuitive for our culture, certainly the culture I come from. Because for us, the best is always upward. It's Always forward. We don't want to descend. We don't want to stoop. We're allergic to it. That's offensive. How many times have you heard this? Oh, that's below me. Is anything below you? 
friends, nothing was below Christ. Nothing was below Christ. He stooped to the uttermost. And, and he was God of all things. Think about this. No humbling we ever experience, no humiliation you or I ever encounter, no serving or stooping that we do will ever remotely resemble Christ. He came from the highest possible place. We don't. He deserved only honor. I deserve humiliation. If I stoop, if I'm humbled, if I'm humiliated, I deserve that. I deserve worse than that. I deserve hell. And so anytime I stoop, it's better than I deserve. So it's totally, it's a category difference from Jesus. So, how, how far are you stooping? Remember the context here. Paul is battling an external, I mean an internal threat to this church. Conflict. Disunity. So the context is relationships. So again, a practical, very practical, but contextually appropriate application. Evaluate your relational world. And friends, spouse, employer, classmates, neighbor, whomever God has placed in your life. Are you stooping for their good? Are you taking a low place in order to serve them? With no evaluation of whether they deserve it or not. Because we did not deserve what Christ did. Did we? <clears throat> Here's another angle. Whoever that person is you have in mind. What would they be more aware of? Your expectations of them or your sacrifice for them? If I was to ask this person, so what are you more aware of? What, this, what, what Joe expects from you or the way Joe has sacrificed for you? What are you aware of? What would they say? What you're demanding from them or how you have served them? What's more prominent? If we keep Christ's example before us and we marvel at his condescension and mercy. Then and only then does denying ourselves to serve others begin to make sense. It's not just crazy stuff Christians do and I hate it but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> when you consider Christ all of a sudden... Humility, you realize humility is God-like. I want to be like God. Stooping is God-like. Humbling myself in, my, in our culture, it's counterintuitive, it doesn't make sense. In the kingdom of God, in light of Christ, it makes perfect sense. And it moves from burden to privilege. You see, it, this revolutionizes life. I'm not just saying I'm going to be a good Christian and humble myself. No, I. this is God-like. 
It is a privilege. It is a joy. And when I do, I'm not just enduring humiliation. I am rejoicing with my Savior. That takes the Holy Spirit. But it begins by catching a vision of Christ. One more implication of Christ's example. Following Christ's example means surrendering our status, denying ourselves to serve others, and then finally, number three, setting our hope in God. Following His example means setting our hope in God. This text doesn't end with a cross. Look with me at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the one who poured Himself out, the one who suffered for us, God exalted Lord of all. The one who stooped to the lowest place has been exalted to the highest place. Now, if you're thinking, you might be asking this question. Why, in this context, does Paul conclude with these verses? I mean, it certainly and rightly portrays the risen Savior in all His glory. But as an illustration for us, what's the purpose? Right? Do you see the dilemma? Um, do, does this mean that if we sacrifice, then we merit honor? So you'll be just like Jesus. Sacrifice and then God will exalt you because you'll be great. And God will be pleased with you. And so He will exalt you. Is that what Paul's saying? If you humble yourself, God will exalt you just like he did Jesus. So go for it. Stoop now because it's going to be great later. Is that what he's saying? I don't think it's quite that self-serving. Think about what's happening here. What's happening here, Jesus is not merely receiving a reward. That's not what's happening. Jesus isn't rewarded for humiliation with exaltation. You know, sort of a quid pro quo for suffering. Okay, you suffered, I'll exalt you. That's not what's happening. These verses display God's vindication of Jesus. That's a good word to learn in a theological sense. This is God's vindication of Jesus. His exaltation is a divine stamp of approval of His saving work. Revealing who Jesus really is and the efficacy of His work. This is God's yes to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This is God's amen. This was my will. It accomplished what I intended. It, this work is finished. And Christ is vindicated. So when Christ was raised from the dead, all his claims were vindicated. 
and the the effectiveness of his work was proclaimed. And in that vindication, his true identity is revealed. So what was hidden on the cross is revealed in his vindication. Now, I want to make a connection of that with us. So for us, there is a promise here indeed. Um, When you stoop, When you surrender your status, when you deny yourself to serve others, when you follow Christ's example of humility, it's not lost on God. All of your serving, all of your sacrifice will be vindicated. Not a second will be wasted. Do you think... You, you will never do anything of, in humility or servanthood. You will never do anything that God doesn't see. Never. That God doesn't notice. The one you serve, here's the promise, the one you serve has been exalted. And one day he will be revealed. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And you will be revealed with Him. All that you have believed and trusted in and given your life for, all of that will be vindicated. All your labor for Christ will be confirmed as legitimate, as real. The full significance of the life that you're pouring out for your Savior. The full significance of that life will be on display. You will be vindicated. And you will experience a joy you've never dreamed imaginable. Do you see? This is not because such behavior earns God's approval. You humbled yourself. Oh, well, then I'm pleased with you and you've earned it. Good job. You're exalted. No. Here's what I mean by you will be vindicated. Such behavior displays the reality of the gospel in your life. Do you see? Such self-denial, such servanthood, such relinquishing of your rights vividly displays something. It vividly displays that God's grace has transformed you. That Christ's death and resurrection holds sway over you, cleansing you from guilt, transforming you from proud, self-seeking, self-exalting individuals to humble servants who reflect their Savior. So on that day, all of your service, all, it will all be revealed. And our Savior, who will receive glory, you'll be revealed with Him. And you will share, as Paul says in Colossians, so you will share in that glory. Not receiving His glory. Not receiving His glory, but reveling in the glory that is His And that we've been swept up to. So this text is not calling us to some white knuckled. Bear up. 
under grit your teeth and just do what good Christians should do. This text is portraying for us the privilege that we have to follow our Savior. And it carries a promise. When you live that way, it's not showing that you're good. Okay? When you live that way, it's showing that you trust the Savior. And when He is revealed, (laughs) the full significance of your life, the reality of your faith, All that you trust and believe will be revealed as true. And you will receive those wonderful words from our Savior. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You see, living this way is only possible because of the gospel. And living this way brings glory to God by displaying the effects of the gospel. As we reflect the one whose very nature is not to grasp, but to give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Lord, we're grasping to get our, get our minds around, get our hearts around what you have done for us. Jesus Christ, fully God, dwelling in unapproachable light. Jesus, you... You didn't sit back. You didn't grasp that. You surrendered your status. You laid aside those privileges. But you did it for us. And then you went further. You, You denied yourself. Going all the way to a cross for us. Because you did, and only because you did, we can be forgiven. We can know you. Our greatest fears can be relieved and our greatest desires, the core of our greatest desires, realized. Because as we said this morning, you made us for yourself. So Jesus, we worship you. We bow down before you.
we are unworthy of you. But oh, how grateful we are that you've made us your own. Father, I pray that these fine men and women here, I pray that you would captivate them with you. You would dazzle them by your humble self-giving. You would, by your Spirit, enable them and me to having having grasped that vision, Lord, to follow your example, to adopt your perspective, to live life that way. By your Spirit and for your glory. Knowing one day, Lord, all that we've trusted in will be shown as real. All that we do will be shown as coming from you. Lord, one day all will be made right. And so we can set our hope in you even as we give ourselves for others. Lord, may we do this for your glory. And if I could just say one thing, just keep your heads bowed. In a group like this, this size, I don't know you, but inevitably there's going to be someone in a group like this who doesn't yet truly know Jesus Christ. And I just want to say to you, you've heard in song and in word, You've heard a message. You've heard news. That news is the gospel. That God sent His Son to become a man. That He might live a perfect life. In other words, fulfilling God's holy law that a holy God demands. And then He died a substitutionary death. He died to pay for the, all the sins that would ever be forgiven. And it's right that He died. It's right that those sins were paid for. A moral God, a God worth worshiping, must punish sin. A God who sweeps sin under the carpet is not worth worshiping. He must punish sin. The good news of the gospel is it doesn't have to happen to us. God gave of Himself to take that sin in the person of His Son. 
And the gospel proclaims the good news is that anyone who would acknowledge they need a Savior, anyone who would acknowledge they are a sinner, anyone who would acknowledge that and recognize that they've lived a life as their own God. They've rejected God's authority. They've lived life on their own terms. They've said, no, God, I'm going to rule my life. Thank you very much. If they recognize that they've done that and they turn and they say, Lord, you will rule my life now. And, and they receive by faith the gift of forgiveness because of what Jesus did. So it's that simple. Believing that Jesus came to be that substitute. Trusting in that in His death as being for you. And turning from your self-directed life to serve Jesus Christ. Anyone who does that will be saved. That is a promise. And so, this is not meant to be dramatic. It's not meant to be a intense moment that we generate. That is, that's the truth of God's Word. That's the promise of the Gospel. So I would just tell you, the Gospel commands you to repent. That means to turn. Do an about-face with your life from yourself to God. Repent and believe. Believe in Jesus. Receive what He's done for yourself. If you repent and believe You can taste of all that we've been singing about, all that we've been speaking about. Your life will never be the same. You will be a new person. You'll be rightly related to your Creator. You will find the reason for which you exist. So I just want to appeal to you. Trust in Jesus. Bow your knee to Him. Receive His gift of forgiveness. And you could be His. You could be a child of God. If you have any questions about that, Dave, other pastors, maybe someone who invited you, Maybe someone you've been hanging out with, myself, would love to talk with you further. But you can do that right now. You can turn. You don't need a person to do it. You can, you can repent right now. You can turn and trust Jesus right now. And you will be saved.